that heaven's door is open and hell's door is shut. They have, in short, what the children of the world have not, a felt, positive, reasonable hope. They have what Paul calls the seal and earnest of the Spirit. Second Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13 I do not for a moment deny that this witness of the Spirit is exceedingly various in the extent to which the sons of God possess it. With some it is a loud, clear ringing, distinct testimony of conscience. I am Christ's, and Christ is mine. With others it is a little feeble, stammering whisper, which the devil and the flesh often prevent being heard. Some of the children of God speed on their course towards heaven under the full sails of assurance. Others are tossed to and fro all their voyage and will scarce believe they have got faith. But take the least and the lowest of the sons of God. Ask him if he will give up the little bit of religious hope which he has attained. Ask him if he will exchange his heart with all its doubts and conflicts, its fightings and fears, ask him if he will exchange that heart for the heart of the downright worldly and careless man. Ask him if he would be content to turn round and throw down the things he has got hold of and go back to the world. Who can doubt what the answer would be? I cannot do that, he would reply. I do not know whether I have faith. I do not feel sure I have got grace. But I have got something within me I would not like to part with. And what is that something? I will tell you. It is the witness of the Spirit. Let us try to understand this also. The sons of God have the witness of the Spirit in their consciences. This is another mark of sonship. For, one thing more, let me add, all the sons of God take part in suffering with Christ. What says the scripture which heads this paper? If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him. Romans 8, 17. All the children of God have a cross to carry. They have trials, troubles, and afflictions to go through for the gospel's sake. They have trials from the world, trials from the flesh, and trials from the devil. They have trials of feeling from relations and friends, hard words, hard treatment, and hard judgment. They have trials in the matter of character, slander, misrepresentation, mockery, insinuation of false motives. All these often rain thick upon them. They have trials in the matter of worldly interests. They have often to choose whether they will please man and lose glory or gain glory and offend man. They have trials from their own hearts. They have each generally their own thorn in the flesh, their own home devil, who is their worst foe. This is 
the experience of the sons of God. Some of them suffer more and some less. Some of them suffer in one way and some in another. God measures out their portions like a wise physician and cannot err. But never, I believe, was there one child of God who reached paradise without a cross. Suffering is the diet of the Lord's family. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If ye be without chastisement, then are ye bastards and not sons. Through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 8, Acts 14, verse 22, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. When Bishop Latimer was told by his landlord that he had never had a trouble, then, said he, God cannot be here. Suffering is a part of the process by which the sons of God are sanctified. They are chastened to wean them from the world and make them partakers of God's holiness. The captain of their salvation was made perfect through suffering, and so are they. Hebrews 2, verse 10, and 12, verse 10. There never yet was a great saint who had not either great afflictions or great corruptions. Well said Philip Melanchthon, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. Let us try to settle this down into our hearts also. The sons of God have all to bear a cross. A suffering Savior generally has suffering disciples. The bridegroom was a man of sorrows. The bride must not be a woman of pleasures and unacquainted with grief. Blessed are they that mourn. Let us not murmur at the cross. This also is a sign of sonship. I warn men never to suppose that they are the sons of God except they have the scriptural marks of sonship. Beware of a sonship without evidences. Again I say, beware. When a man has no leading of the Spirit to show me, no spirit of adoption to tell of, no witness of the Spirit in his conscience, no cross in his experience, is this man a son of God? Whatever others may think, I dare not say so. His spot is not the spot of God's children. Deuteronomy 32.5 He is no heir of glory. Tell me not that you have been baptized and taught the catechism of the Church of England and therefore must be a child of God. I tell you that the parish register is not the book of life. I tell you that to be styled a child of God and called regenerate in infancy by the faith and charity of the prayer book is one thing. But to be a child of God indeed, another thing altogether. Go and read that catechism again. It is the death unto sin and the new birth unto righteousness which makes men children of grace. Except you know these by experience, you are no son of God.
Tell me not that you are a member of Christ's church and so must be a son. I answered that the sons of the church are not necessarily the sons of God. Such sonship is not the sonship of the eighth of Romans. That is the sonship you must have if you are to be saved. And now, I doubt not some reader of this paper will want to know if he may not be saved without the witness of the Spirit. I answer, if you mean by the witness of the Spirit the full assurance of hope, you may be so saved without question. But if you want to know whether a man can be saved without any inward sense or knowledge or hope of salvation, I answer that ordinarily he cannot. I warn you plainly to cast away all indecision as to your state before God and to make your calling sure. Clear up your position and relationship. Do not think there is anything praiseworthy in always doubting. Leave that to the papists. Do not fancy it wise and humble to be ever living like the borderers of old time on the debatable ground. Assurance, said old Dodd the Puritan, may be attained, and what have we been doing all our lives since we became Christians if we have not attained it? I doubt not some true Christians who read this paper will think their evidence of sonship is too small to be good and will write bitter things against themselves. Let me try to cheer them. Who gave you the feelings you possess? Who made you hate sin? Who made you love Christ? Who made you long and labor to be holy? Whence did these feelings come? Did they come from nature? There are no such products in a natural man's heart. Did they come from the devil? He would fain stifle such feelings altogether. Cheer up and take courage. Fear not, neither be cast down. Press forward and go on. There is hope for you after all. Strive, labor, seek, ask, not follow on. You shall yet see that you are sons of God. 3. Let me show in the last place the privileges of the true Christian's relation to God. Nothing can be conceived more glorious than the prospects of the sons of God. The words of Scripture which head this paper contain a rich mine of good and comfortable things. If we are children, says Paul, we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ to be glorified together with Him. Romans 8, verse 17 True Christians, then, are heirs. Something is prepared for them, all which is yet to be revealed. They are heirs of God. To be heirs of the rich on earth is something. How much more, then, is it to be son and heir of the King of Kings, they are joint heirs with Christ. They shall share in His majesty and take part in His glory. They shall be glorified together with Him. 
And this, we must remember, is for all the children. Abraham took care to provide for all his children, and God takes care to provide for his. None of them are disinherited, none will be cast out, none will be cut off. Each shall stand in his lot and have a portion in the day when the Lord brings many sons to glory. Who can tell the full nature of the inheritance of the saints in light? Who can describe the glory which is yet to be revealed and given to the children of God? Words fail us, language falls short. Mind cannot conceive fully and tongue cannot express perfectly the things which are comprised in the glory yet to come upon the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Oh, it is indeed a true saying of the Apostle John. It does not yet appear what we shall be. First John 3, verse 2. The very Bible itself only lifts a little of the veil which hangs over this subject. How could it do more? We could not thoroughly understand more if more had been told us. Our mental constitution is as yet too earthly. Our understanding is as yet too carnal to appreciate more if we had it. The Bible generally deals with the subject in negative terms and not in positive assertions. It describes what there will not be in the glorious inheritance, that thus we may get some faint idea of what there will be. It paints the absence of certain things in order that we may drink in a little the blessedness of the things present. It tells us that the inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. It tells us that the crown of glory fadeth not away. It tells us that the devil is to be bound, that there shall be no more night and no more curse, that death shall be cast into the lake of fire, that all tears shall be wiped away, and that the inhabitant shall no more say, I am sick. And these are glorious things indeed, no corruption, no fading, no withering, no devil, no curse of sin, no sorrow, no tears, no sickness, no death. Surely the cup of the children of God will indeed run over. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 5 verse 4, Revelation 20 verse 2, 21 verse 25, 22 verse 3, 20 verse 14, 21 verse 4, Isaiah 33 verse 24. But there are positive things told us about the glory yet to come upon the heirs of God, which ought not to be kept back. There are many sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comforts in their future inheritance, which all true Christians would do well to consider. There are cordials for fainting pilgrims in many words and expressions of Scripture, which you and I ought to lay up against time of need. A. Is knowledge 
pleasant to us now is the little that we know of God and Christ and the Bible precious to our souls and do we long for more. We shall have it perfectly in glory. But says the scripture, Then shall I know even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13.12 Blessed be God, there will be no more disagreements among believers. Episcopalians and Presbyterians, Calvinists and Arminians, Millenarians and Anti-Millenarians, Friends of Establishments and Friends of the Voluntary System, Advocates of Infant Baptism and Advocates of Adult Baptism. All will at length see eye to eye. The former ignorance will have passed away. We shall marvel to find how childish and blind we have been. B. Is holiness pleasant to us now? Is sin the burden and bitterness of our lives? Do we long for entire conformity to the image of God? We shall have it perfectly in glory. For says the scripture, Christ gave himself for the church, not only that he might sanctify it on earth, but also that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 Oh, the blessedness of an eternal goodbye to sin. Oh, how little the best of us do at present. Oh, what unutterable corruption sticks like birdlime to all our motives, all our thoughts, all our words, all our actions. Oh, how many of us like Naphtali are goodly in our words, but like Reuben unstable in our works. Thank God all this shall be changed. Genesis 49, 4 and 21. See, is rest pleasant to us now? Do we often feel faint, though pursuing? Judges 8.4. Do we long for a world in which we need not to be always watching and warring? We shall have it perfectly in glory. What saith the scripture? There remaineth a rest for the people of God, Hebrews 4.9, the daily, hourly conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil, shall at length be at an end. The enemy shall be bound, the warfare shall be over. The wicked shall at last cease from troubling, the weary shall at length be at rest. There shall be a great calm, deep, is service pleasant to us now? Do we find it sweet to work for Christ and yet groan being burdened by a feeble body? Is our spirit often willing but hampered and clogged by the poor weak flesh? Have our hearts burned within us when we have been allowed to give a cup of cold water for Christ's sake? And have we sighed to think what unprofitable servants we are? Let us take comfort. We shall be able to serve perfectly in glory and without weariness. 
what saith the Scripture? They serve him day and night in his temple. Revelation 7.15 E. Is satisfaction pleasant to us now? Do we find the world empty? Do we long for the filling up of every void place and gap in our hearts? We shall have it perfectly in glory. We shall no longer have to mourn over cracks in all our earthen vessels and thorns in all our roses and bitter dregs in all our sweet cups. We shall no longer lament with Jonah over withered gourds. We shall no longer say with Solomon, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. We shall no longer cry with age to David, I have seen an end of all perfection. What saith the scripture? I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Ecclesiastes 114, Psalm 119.96 and 17 verse 15. F. Is communion with the saints pleasant to us now? Do we feel that we are never so happy as when we are with the excellent of the earth? Are we never so much at home as in their company? Psalm 16.3 We shall have it perfectly in glory. What saith the scripture? The Son of Man shall send His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all they that offend, and them which work iniquity. He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds. Matthew 13.41 and 24.31 Praise be God! We shall see all the saints of whom we have read in the Bible and in whose steps we have tried to walk. We shall see apostles, prophets, patriarchs, martyrs, reformers, missionaries and ministers of whom the world was not worthy. We shall see the faces of those we have known and loved in Christ on earth and over whose departure we shed bitter tears. We shall see them more bright and glorious than they ever were before. And best of all, we shall see them without hurry and anxiety and without feeling that we only meet to part again. In the coming glory there is no death, no parting, no farewell. Gee, is communion with Christ pleasant to us now? Do we find his name precious to us? Do we feel our hearts burn within us at the thought of his dying love? We shall have perfect communion with him in glory. We shall ever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4.17 We shall be with him in paradise. Luke 23.43 We shall see his face in the kingdom. These eyes of ours will behold those hands and feet which were pierced with nails, and that head which was crowned with thorns. Where he is, there will the sons of God be. When he comes, they will come with him. When he sits down in his glory, they shall sit down by his side. Blessed prospect indeed. 
I am a dying man in a dying world. All before me is dark. The world to come is a harbor unknown. But Christ is there, and that is enough. Surely, if there is rest and peace in following Him by faith on earth, there will be far more rest and peace when we see Him face to face. If we have found it good to follow the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness, we shall find it a thousand times better to sit down in our eternal inheritance with our Joshua in the promised land. If anyone among the readers of this paper is not yet among the sons and heirs, I do pity you with all my heart. How much you are missing, how little to comfort you are enjoying. There you are, struggling on and toiling in the fire and wearying yourself for mere earthly ends, seeking rest and finding none, chasing shadows and never catching them, wondering why you are not happy and yet refusing to see the cause, hungry and thirsty and empty and yet blind to the plenty within your reach. Oh, that you were wise! Oh, that you would hear the voice of Jesus and learn of Him! If you are one of those who are sons and heirs, you may well rejoice and be happy. You may well wait like the boy patience in Pilgrim's Progress. Your best things are yet to come. You may well bear crosses without murmuring. Your light affliction is but for a moment. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which is to be revealed. When Christ our life appears, then you also shall appear with him in glory. Romans 8.18, Colossians 3.4 You may well not envy the transgressor and his prosperity. You are the truly rich. Well said a dying believer in my own parish. I am more rich than I ever was in my life. You may say as Mephibosheth said to David, Let the world take all. My king is coming again in peace. 2 Samuel 19, verse 30 You may say, as Alexander said when he gave all his riches away and was asked what he kept for himself, I have hope. You may well not be cast down by sickness. The eternal part of you is safe and provided for whatever happens to your body. You may well look calmly on death. It opens a door between you and your inheritance. You may well not sorrow excessively over the things of the world, over partings and bereavements, over losses and crosses. The day of gathering is before you. Your treasure is beyond reach of harm. Heaven is becoming every year more full of those you love and earth more empty. Glory in your inheritance. It is all yours if you are a son of God. If we are children, then we are heirs. 1. And now in concluding this paper, let me ask everyone who reads it, 
Whose child are you? Are you the child of nature or the child of grace? Are you the child of the devil or the child of God? You cannot be both at once. Which are you? Settle the question without delay, for you must die at last either one or the other. Settle it, for it can be settled, and it is folly to leave it doubtful. Settle it, for time is short, the world is getting old, and you are fast drawing near to the judgment seat of Christ. Settle it, for death is nigh. The Lord is at hand, and who can tell what a day might bring forth? Oh, that you would never rest till the question is settled. Oh, that you may never feel satisfied till you can say, I have been born again. I am a son of God. Two, if you are not a son and heir of God, let me entreat you to become one without delay. Would you be rich? These are unsearchable riches in Christ. Would you be noble? You shall be a king. Would you be happy? You shall have a peace which passeth understanding and which the world can never give and never take away. Oh, come out and take up the cross and follow Christ. Come out from among the thoughtless and worldly and hear the word of the Lord. I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Second Corinthians 6, verse 18. 3. If you are a son of God, I beseech you to walk worthy of your father's house. I charge you solemnly to honor him in your life, and above all to honor him by implicit obedience to all his commands and hearty love, to all his children. Labor to travel through the world like a child of God and heir to glory. Let men be able to trace a family likeness between you and him that begat you. Live a heavenly life. Seek things that are above. Do not seem to be building your nest below. Behave like a man who seeks a city out of sight whose citizenship is in heaven and who would be content with many hardships till he gets home. Labor to feel like a son of God in every condition in which you are placed. Never forget you are on your father's ground so long as you are here on earth. Never forget that a father's hand sends all your mercies and crosses. Cast every care on him. Be happy and cheerful in him. Why indeed art thou ever sad if thou art the king's son? Why should men ever doubt when they look at you whether it is a pleasant thing to be of God's children? Labor to behave towards others like a son of God. Be blameless and harmless in your day and generation. Be a peacemaker among all you know. Matthew 5, 9 Seek for your children sonship to God above everything else. Seek for them an inheritance in heaven, whatever else you do for them. No man leaves his children so well provided for as he who leaves them sons and heirs of God. 
Persevere in your Christian calling if you are a son of God and press forward more and more. Be careful to lay aside every weight and the sin which most easily besets you. Keep your eyes steadily fixed on Jesus. Abide in Him. Remember that without Him you can do nothing, and with Him you can do all things. John 15.5, Philippians 4, verse 13. Watch and pray daily. Be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Settle it down in your heart that not a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple shall lose its reward, and that every year you are so much nearer home. Yet a little time, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Hebrews 10.37 Then shall be the glorious liberty and the full manifestation of the sons of God. Romans 8.19 and 21 Then shall the world acknowledge that they were the truly wise. Then shall the sons of God at length come of age and be no longer heirs in expectancy, but heirs in possession. Then shall they hear with exceeding joy those comfortable words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Surely that day will make amends for all. Chapter 19 The Great Gathering Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 The text which heads this page contains an expression which deserves no common attention. That expression is our gathering together. Our gathering together, those three words touch a note which ought to find a response in every part of the world. Man is by nature a social being. He does not like to be alone. Go where you will on earth, people generally like meeting together and seeing one another's faces. It is the exception and not the rule to find children of Adam who do not like gathering together. For example, Christmas is peculiarly a time when English people gather together. It is a season when family meetings have become almost a national institution. In town and in country, among rich and among poor, from the palace to the workhouse, Christmas cheer and Christmas parties are proverbial things. It is the one time in the twelve months with many for seeing their friends at all. Sons snatch a few days from London business to run down and see their parents. Brothers get leave of absence from the desk to spend a week with their sisters. Friends accept long-standing invitations and contrive to pay a visit to their friends. Boys rush home from school and glory in the warmth and comfort of the old house. Business for a little space comes to a standstill. 
The weary wheels of incessant labor seem almost to cease revolving for a few hours. In short, from the Isle of Wright to Berwick-on-Tweed, and from the lands into the North Foreland, there is a general spirit of gathering together. Happy is the land where such a state of things exists. Long may it last in England, and never may it end. Poor and shallow is that philosophy which sneers at Christmas gatherings. Cold and hard is that religion which pretends to frown at them and denounces them as wicked. Family affection lies at the very roots of well-ordered society. It is one of the few good things which have survived the fall and prevent men and women from being mere devils. It is the secret oil on the wheels of our social system which keeps the whole machine going and without which neither steam nor fire would avail. Anything which helps to keep up family affection and brotherly love is a positive good to a country. May the Christmas Day never arrive in England when there are no family meetings and no gatherings together. But earthly gatherings, after all, have something about them that is sad and sorrowful. The happiest parties sometimes contain uncongenial members. The merriest meetings are only for a very short time. Moreover, as years roll on, the hand of death makes painful gaps in the family circle. Even in the midst of Christmas merriment, we cannot help remembering those who have passed away. The longer we live, the more we feel to stand alone. The old faces will rise before the eyes of our minds, and the old voices will sound in our ears, even in the midst of holiday mirth and laughter. People do not talk much about such things, but there are few that do not feel them. We need not intrude our inmost thoughts on others, and especially when all around us are bright and happy. But there are not many, I suspect, who reach middle age who would not admit, if they spoke the truth, that there are sorrowful things inseparably mixed up with a Christmas party. In short, there is no unmixed pleasure about any earthly gathering. But is there no better gathering yet to come? Is there no bright prospect in our horizon of an assembly which shall far outshine the assemblies of Christmas and New Year, an assembly in which there shall be joy without sorrow and mirth without tears? I thank God that I can give a plain answer to these questions, and to give it is the simple object of this paper. I ask my readers to give me their attention for a few minutes, and I will soon show them what I mean. One, there is a gathering together of true Christians which is to come. What is it, and when shall it be? The gathering I speak of shall take place at the end of the world, in the day when Christ returns to earth the second time. As surely as he came the first time, so surely shall he come the second time. In the clouds of heaven he went away, and in the clouds of heaven he shall return. Visibly in the body he went away, 
and visibly in the body he will return. And the very first thing that Christ will do will be to gather together his people. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24:31. The manner of this gathering together is plainly revealed in Scripture. The dead saints shall all be raised and the living saints shall all be changed. It is written, The sea shall give up the dead which are in it, and death and hell shall give up the dead that are in them. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Those which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Revelation 20, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. And then, when every member of Christ is found and not one left behind, when soul and body, those old companions, are once more reunited, then shall be the grand gathering together. The object of this gathering together is as clearly revealed in Scripture as its manner. It is partly for the final reward of Christ's people that their complete justification from all guilt may be declared to all creation, that they may receive the crown of glory which fadeth not away, and the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world, that they may be admitted publicly into the joy of their Lord. It is partly for the safety of Christ's people that, like Noah in the ark and Lot and Zohar, they may be hid and covered before the storm of God's judgment comes down on the wicked, that when the last plagues are falling on the enemies of the Lord, they may be untouched as Rahab's family in the fall of Jericho, and unscathed as the three children in the midst of the fire. The saints have no cause to fear the day of gathering, however fearful the signs that may accompany it. Before the final crash of all things begins, they shall be hidden in the secret place of the Most High. The grand gathering is for their safety and their reward. Fear not ye, shall the angel reapers say, for ye seek Jesus which was crucified. Come, my people, shall their master say. Enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. Matthew 28.5 Isaiah 26.20 A. This gathering will be a great one. All children of God who have ever lived from Abel the first saint down to the last, born in the day that our Lord comes, all of every age and nation and church and people and tongue, all shall be assembled together. Not one shall be overlooked or forgotten. The weakest and feeblest shall not be left behind. Now, 
when scattered, two Christians seem a little flock. Then when gathered, they shall be found a multitude which no man can number. B. This gathering will be a wonderful one. The saints from distant lands who never saw each other in the flesh and could not understand each other's speech if they met shall all be brought together in one harmonious company. The dwellers in Australia shall find they are as near heaven and as soon there as the dwellers in England. The believers who died 5,000 years ago and whose bones are mere dust shall find their bodies raised and renewed as quickly as those who are alive when the trumpet sounds. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.